0: Well good morning. morning. My name is Nancy and Steve and I do go back 15 years just so you know we used to call him Snow Cone. So I think that should probably continue. It's amazing when you think about what the word family means and how from the very beginning of the Bible in the first couple chapters of Genesis God has this great idea of two people Really love each other, and in one of the most intimate ways of loving each other, they're able to create a new human being who then becomes part of this thing called a family. And God is saying from the very beginning that primarily in the family is going to be a place where we will experience love for each other and know who God is. And very quickly that got broken, very, very quickly. And then God says, I'm not going to give up on the concept of family. I'm going to expand it. And I'm going to help you understand that even though your family's broken, the idea of family, of people who know each other and love each other and include each other, is going to be what I build the tribes on and the nation of Israel on and the church on. Family is a really powerful word when it's working well. A terribly broken word when it's not. I had a meeting two days ago where I met with a group of people and a couple of churches in the area that are trying to impact the foster care system. And as I'm listening to all of the statistics, one of them that got thrown out, 70% of all state inmates were in the foster care system. When the family is broken, it has enormous repercussions. And so I'm going to talk this morning about some different aspects of family. Now for some of you in here, you're not married. For some of you in here, you're still in school and marriage and family feels like it's a long way away. Not a problem. This is going to be what I call a back burner sermon for you. You're going to listen to it. You're going to throw it in the back of your brain and it'll percolate even when you're not thinking about it. And when you're ready and when you need it, you will kind of bring it forward. For some of you, you are so in the middle of it, you wish I would shut up right now and just get to the heart of the message. Yesterday, yesterday I had two experiences one in the morning where I ran into a friend who has two little toddlers and then in the afternoon I got a phone call from another good friend who texted me actually and said pray for us we just found weed in our son's room he's in eighth grade you can never imagine when you have the toddlers that, that would ever be a possibility. And when you have this situation, you could never remember hardly what it was like when it felt so innocent. And all of that is in the scope of what does it mean to be a parent. Now, I don't speak on parenting very often. At all. Almost never. I'm doing this as a favor to you, so you owe me once again. <laughs> there are so many things you owe me for. I got... Uh, email a couple years ago saying we'd love for you to put an endorsement on a book on parenting and I said yep don't speak to all women's groups not putting a book an endorsement on a a book about parenting it's just too scary because people are looking for formulas they're looking for guarantees most of the writing that gets done about parenting is awful and then they said okay just give this book one chance it's called parenting is your highest calling and I'm like Ah, and then the subtitle, and seven other myths that will ruin your life. (laughs) I'll endorse that book. And then I come to find out that the mother that wrote it is a commercial fisherman in Alaska. I'm like, for sure I'll endorse this book. It's one of the most freeing books for helping us to understand what our role as parents is and what it isn't, because here's the truth. I think parenting is the most difficult intersection of my life. Nothing else compares, because it is the intersection of the most wonderful thing I've ever done and the most difficult thing I've ever done. And that is a recipe for crazy making, (laughs) really crazy making. It's also an introduction. Uh, It's also a, a, a recipe for connecting deeply with God, because you know so desperately on most days, I'm overwhelmed, I don't think I can do this, I'm going to mess it up because when you get them, they're kind of perfect. They haven't done anything wrong, they're pretty nicely put together. And I just remember many nights at night thinking, it's kind of like being a gymnast. You start with a perfect 10 and every time you make a mistake, they deduct a point. And that's sort of what it feels like to me to be a parent. I'm gonna introduce you to my three kids. Um, They're not here, so I got to pick the pictures. And let me show you the first one. The first one is our youngest daughter named Laura. This is Laura in a nutshell. This is this picture that comes up when Laura calls me. She is now 30 years old. She doesn't look like this anymore. (laughs) But um, when I would send her out in the backyard to play, she's a firstborn girl. That's all you need to know about Laura. She's a firstborn girl. When I would send her in the backyard to play, she would come back in after an hour of playing in the backyard and there would not be a molecule of dirt on her, nowhere. She is right now sitting on my old cheerleading stool with her hair up in braids, which she insisted on pushing back the cuticles on her nails, because I suppose at 18 months old, this is very important. So that is our oldest daughter, Laura. Next picture, this one's a little blurry, but this is my daughter, Mallory. Uh, Mallory in that picture was probably in fourth or fifth grade. Both of my girls are redheads um Mallory when I would send her out into the backyard to play in the dirt it would be in her nose holes in her ears and it would come out the next day in her diaper they are sisters and they eventually learned to love each other Uh, they could not be more different they just could not be more different Uh, Mallory just hasn't met a stranger but she will never remember your name this is my friend what's her name I don't know they're my friend Okay, okay. Uh, she lives life getting neck deep into it, where Laura is much more planned and proper. And then our third one was a son. This is Johnny. He is now six foot six. Um, and he was such a different creature. I was one of those moms who was determined when my kids were little, my girls were getting trucks and my boys were getting dolls. And I think that helped. But as a boy, he can make a sound in the back of his throat for a truck that my girls were incapable of making. Um, whereas my girls would get bored very quickly, my son, even at two years old, could sit for two hours at a time and focus on something. And he still brings that to his life. Um, He's a surfer right now. Um, when he first started learning how to surf, I would drive him to the beach and stand there with my binoculars and my cell phone, and he'd be like, "Mom, mom, get back in the car, put them away. You're embarrassing me." Uh, let me bring you up to date a little bit on some of the pictures that I have. This is the next one is Laura. <laughs> my kids are really weird uh, one of my girlfriends her daughter said to her or she said to her daughter the other day Brittany you are so weird and Brittany said do you mean it really do you mean it my kids are very uh, unusual so th- this is eat them eating at a Chinese restaurant and their brother couldn't be there so they sent a picture of themselves this is Laura all grown up this is Mallory doing the same thing and this next picture is my son in drag uh, with my oldest daughter at a spring thing in Westmont so those are my kids Those are my kids. (laughs) Let's take that one down. That's a terrifying picture. Um, My kids are just, they're all so different from each other. At 30, 28, and 26 now, they're good friends. That wasn't always the case. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about some of the major points when I look in the rearview mirror. I would say these are some approaches to parenting that I think really, really helped us with our kids. And in the middle of that, I will also tell you some of the grand mistakes that we made because there were many. Um, I have three main areas. The first one is what I would call servant leadership. I do a lot of consulting with corporations around organizational health and organizational clarity. And we talk a lot about, what does it mean to be a servant leadership? Even in corporate cultures, they're asking that question. Well, that's a phrase that's been around for a long time. And what I'm finding in the leadership role is it's very difficult to put teeth into that and make it actually mean something. I think the thing that servant leadership means more than anything is how do I become, whether it's at work or at home, a student of the other. A student of the other. Uh, Martin Buber, who was a philosopher, kind of came up with that phrase, how do we look at the other and not just ourselves? We are wired to see life from our perspective. We are wired that our perspective is, is just how we see life. And it's very difficult sometimes to understand that other people have very different wirings and perspectives from us. Um, It's true in friendships, it's true in marriage, it's true in parenting, it's true in leadership. So how do I become a student of the other? When our first daughter Laura was born, I think because I was pretty inexperienced, I was 30 years old when I had Laura, I was expecting her to be a bit of a blank slate, kind of wet cement that I would shape, and crazy, if it wasn't true, that she already had a personality. Already, from the very minute she came out, I did not see that coming. And now when I look back on all three of my pregnancies, I can even tell you the way that I carried them inside now relates so much to the way that they were in life. And so my question then had to shift not from how do I shape you, which is still true to some degree, but the more important question is, even as I looked at that infant, who are you?" And as a parent, that question of who are you I think is one of the most profound questions you can ask continually as you have a child. what's interesting is what happens in families a lot is there, there become, becomes this great comparison, and my kids did it for sure but I would tell my kids all the time, there's only three of you in the family. Why in the world do you compare yourself to each other is kind of ridiculous. There's a world of billions of people. If you're going to do comparisons, get it up on that level. But don't look at one sister and one brother and try to figure out who you are. When we don't ask the question, who are you, we start to force our children to comply and become what we want them to be we set them up to compare themselves to each other and boy you just have to read the bible to see what that did to brothers in the bible when this comparison thing took root so there's a passage in john chapter one or 21 it's one of my favorite passages i I suppose i'm not supposed to say that and i'll probably get a timeout chair in heaven for a while for saying that but i have a couple places in in the bible that are just my favorites and this is one of them it's a post-resurrection appearance of jesus And even though Jesus had appeared to the disciples a number of times, they still didn't quite get it. And you can tell, especially at the beginning of this chapter, they didn't get it because those that were fishermen had gone back to fishing. They went back to the occupation where they were standing when Jesus called them because they were a little discouraged. This whole Jesus thing had not ended with the overthrow of the Roman government like they thought it would be. It didn't end with Israel being reinstituted as the premier nation of the world. It ended with Jesus dying on a cross and everybody that followed him being scattered. And so you can tell from the very beginning that they're discouraged and they're out fishing. They're not doing very well. It says it was early in the morning and it says that Jesus was on the shore but the disciples didn't recognize who it was. And from the boat, they could see that he was bent over the fire, and he was making bread and cooking fish. And then this man on the shore that they didn't recognize who was cooking called out to them and said, hey, are you having trouble fishing? Yes. Try throwing your nets on the other side of the boat. They did. They caught a lot of fish. Uh, In fact, later on in the chapter, it was recorded that there were 153. So one of those disciples was an S on the Myers-Briggs and really wanted to count every one of those fish. And then, when the fish got caught, Peter, gotta love Peter, makes this connection of, oh, I think this is Jesus, because he's done this before. And then again, just true to form, because John, the disciple, is writing this chapter. It says that um, Peter took his garment and wrapped his outer garment around him, because he had taken it off in the boat while he was fishing and jumped into the water. So here we go again, Peter's in the water, he's not walking on it this time, and then because John's doing the narrative with Peter being impulsive, this is what John says, the other disciples followed in the boat. You can kind of just hear the comparison, like, the way they should have. So Peter's trying to swim to shore to see Jesus, the rest of the disciples are following decorum in the boat, they get to the shore, and then it says that there was a fire of coals with fish on it and bread, and Jesus invited them to eat. Now let me stop for just a second. Because I think co-parenting is one of the most important things that Christians need to do as parents. And I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. But if you ever wonder what would Jesus do, there is great scripture in John chapter 21 that says, if you're a man, you should be cooking. Okay? I didn't make it up. I'm just the messenger. I'm telling you, cooking. Okay? That was free. That was for no, nothing to do with the sermon. Anyway, after... Peter talks to Jesus. Jesus invites Peter to take a walk on the beach. And while they're walking, he reinstates Peter. I don't have time to go into this, but if you have a chance to study, starting with verse 15, Jesus uses the same framework in the Greek language of a series of three questions followed by three answers to mimic and repeat the same framework that Peter used when he denied Jesus. You know that man. I don't know that man. You know that man. I've never seen him before three times, and then the cock crew and Peter had denied Christ. Jesus uses the same poetic framework of Greek language as a way to remind Peter, hey, one of the last times we were together, this is what happened. Now I'm using a different topic, and the question is directed to you, but it's also a way to forgive Peter and reinstate Peter. So three times Jesus says, do you love me? Peter says, yes. Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Three times Jesus is saying, Peter, when I'm gone, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, and I want you to keep this movement going. It didn't end the way you thought it would, but I promise you it has all kinds of repercussions for thousands of years from now, so keep leading the church. And then the third time when he said that, it says Peter was hurt because Jesus kept asking him the same question, and he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you, and one more time Jesus said, then feed my sheep. And then since Jesus has Peter's attention now, he says, let me tell you one more thing. Let me tell you how you're going to die. And there's this passage where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you want, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will lead you and take you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to tell Peter the kind of death that Peter would have that would glorify God. And one more time, he said, follow me. So Peter gets his calling, feed my sheep, take care of the church, and he also gets, here's how you're going to die when you're an old man. It's not going to be pretty. And then Peter, instead of saying, yes, Lord, because we all think if we just heard directly from God what we were supposed to do, we would do it, maybe not, Peter turns around and looks at John, the disciple who's following him, and says, what about him? What about him? If you're my age, it's that, let's make a deal. What's behind door number one, two, or three? If you're younger than me, it's deal or no deal. I see what this person got, but I want to compare them before I say yes. And what I I find fascinating about this passage is Peter has now just committed the sin of comparison. And Jesus's response, no matter how you read it, you cannot not hear the anger in Jesus's voice. He's Just short of vitriolic. We're not talking about murder. We're not talking about adultery. Jesus says, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus got really angry at the sin of comparison. And I think as parents, this has huge leadership implications, but as parents, it's super important that we understand our kids are going to kind of naturally try to compare themselves to their brothers and sisters, to people outside. And one of the ways of keeping them on the right path is every time they do to have a great conversation of right-sizing that. Well, that doesn't really matter, because they're wired by God, and aren't you happy that they get to be that kind of person? What about you? And part of being a student of the other is to decrease the comparison in the family. I I meet with lots of people my age and older who are still deeply wounded by unintentional or intentional comments their parents made growing up that pitted them against each other, or even in a lighthearted way compared them, and they got, my sister was the smart one, I was the athletic one. When we put labels on people, It boxes them into being a smaller version of themselves. And so you want to constantly be asking your kids, who are you? Getting them involved in activities and pathways that will fit, because your job as a mom and as a dad is to help them find out who God made them to be and to live the best version of that person, not who you wish they were. Not living vicariously through your kids, thinking, I never got a chance to do that, so I want my kids to do that. But really asking the questions and giving them feedback on who they were. Now, another subcomponent of that, of this question of who are you, is also one you need as a parent to be asking yourself, who am I? Because some of the most brilliant parenting happens at the intersection of knowing who my kid is and knowing who I am and who I'm not and meeting them at that place. I'll give you a couple of examples. There are all kinds of parents. There are parents who, when their kids are little, could spend hours on the floor playing board games with their kids. Yeah. I would rather die. <laughs> when my kids would get Candyland out, I would get sick to my stomach. When they would get chutes and ladders out, I would find that one chute where you lose and roll on and go, oh, mommy lost, okay, let's fold those up and do something else. I absolutely hate board games. Hate them. Now, one or two of my children liked board games. One of them didn't particularly like them. I would play it for a while, but here's what I knew for sure. If I was going to be the very best person I could, very best parent I could possibly be, I was going to have to decrease the number of times that I played board games with my children and increase something else that I was better at. My husband didn't mind playing them. We had friends that would come over that would play them. I had babysitters where I'd say, your job tonight, even if you don't wash the dishes, is to play board games with my children. I had to figure out who was I as a parent. What were the best strengths I could bring to be being a parent instead of that pressure of I have to do everything well? We had a drawer of board games, so when my kids got older and they could play it with their friends or play it by themselves, that took care of the board game thing. I also um, really hated being a room mom. Here's what happened every time I was a room mom. Oh, it's field trip day. Great. I get to go on a bus for an hour and a half smelling diesel fumes. They don't put me in a group with my kids. So I have six kids. I don't know. And it just takes forever. And I felt nothing but guilty, nothing but horrible because I had friends who were poster women for room moms. And then my brother-in-law told me one day, not, he didn't even know this about me, he said, hey, I've got this new idea I started doing with my kids, and he said, I don't go in and help in the rooms anymore, but once a year, I do what we call kidnap day. I'm like, tell me more. <laughs> he said, well, drop Justin off at second grade. Come back ten minutes later after he's in his class, go to the office and say, I need to call Justin out for the day. Intercom, Justin Harrison, please come to the front. He thinks he's in trouble. He gets up there, it's dad, and his dad says, come on, today's kidnap day. You do whatever you want all day long. So they go to a movie, they go skateboarding, they go out to lunch, they go to the park, they go on a hike, and here's the beauty of it. My kids loved kidnap day way more than they ever loved me coming in as a room mom. And I was so much better at kidnap day than I was being a room mom. Now, if you're a room mom, that's awesome. But part of what I'm going to do is when I hear your story, I'm going to feel like I should do what you do. And part of my job is to listen to your story with curiosity and be happy for you and then step away and think, now what's my expression of involvement with my kids' life at their school? Um, The church that I'm at up in Menlo Park, we have one mom that I met and I just love this story. She has three kids and her kids go to school in Atherton, which, you know, who needs a room mom when you go to Atherton? So she told her kids at a pretty early age, I'm going to be a room mom. And they were like, yeah. She goes, oh, but not for you guys. Oh, it was a great teaching moment. She kind of got them all excited. They said, oh, not for you. Like, what mother tells their kids I'm not going to be? She said, do you know over in East Palo Alto that there are kids whose moms can't be room moms? Well, why not? Well, they work two jobs. Well, why? Well, they don't have enough money. Well, why? So she starts educating her kids on what life is like for students in East Palo Alto, and she said, I'm going to be a room mom for their third grade class. Oh, mom, that's awesome. Sometime, could we come when you do it? And for the last five years, she's been a room mom for a school where her kids don't go to school because at her school, there's plenty of moms that do that. Now, I don't do that. The truth is, and again, I'm just going to speak to women for a minute, I do think we can be our own worst enemies to each other. And I would say, no matter what the continuum is, if you homeschool, or you send your kids to boarding school, or anything in between, most parents are just trying to figure out how to do the best they possibly can, and have the marriage that they want, and the family that they want. And I think if we would be instead curious about other people's choices instead of comparative about them, we would go a long way in helping us to see parenting is not a formula. It's doing the very best we can given who we are, given our resources and our limitations and our strengths and our weaknesses. And I think stay-at-home moms and working moms ought to be the very best of friends to each other instead of making each other feel guilty about choices. So I'm trying to figure out who am I and what's the best kind of mom I can be, and I'm looking at this Atherton mom and thinking, man, I'm going to tell her story everywhere I can, just hoping maybe that one other mom would say, oh, I think that's mine. I tell my kidnap story. Other moms say, I think I'm going to do that. Other moms say, I love being a room mom. It's great. So this servant leadership, this intersection of who am I and who are my kids and how do we come together. Then the next thing I would talk about and this is a no-brainer, but I want to play it out a little bit for us, is how do I pray for my children? How do I pray for my children from the time I find out I'm carrying a child till when I give birth to them forever? How do I pray for them? I don't know about you, but as soon as I say the P word, I get all kinds of guilt and all kinds of feeling like I never do it enough, I never do it right. That's my struggle. I feel like if I'm not, doing it in the morning for at least a half an hour on my knees that it doesn't count. And then I feel like if I'm in the car and I whisper, pray a prayer for my friend who just found weed in their kid's um, room yesterday, I feel like God's saying that doesn't count. And then I'm realizing, oh, maybe that's not God's voice. Maybe that's somebody else's voice. Maybe it does count. So what kind of prayer, all different kinds of prayer for your kids during the life of your children? Um, really interesting to pray when you get pregnant really f- interesting to pray when they're little um, I kept thinking I just need to get my kids to 18 <laughs> Oh, silly silly girl <gasps> 18 to 28 there's a word I use but I can't use it here or you'll never ask me to speak again but it's a word that means things are really 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 hard <clears throat> yeah and that's what it is it's really hard some of the hardest parenting we've ever done took us to a level of prayer. You know, and here's what, here's what people will tell you. Took me to the deepest level of prayer. Yeah? Also took me to another kind of prayer. Silence. Stop praying. Surrender. It was so hard. It was so awful. It was so unthinkable. First I got mad at God. Um, and then... I dug through that mess and realized he was still there and that it wasn't just about me, it wasn't just about that kid, but that kid had to be on a journey. And then, honestly, this was just one time, I'm sure it'll happen again, for about a two-month period, as best I can tell, I feel like God said to me, stop praying. I'm like, stop praying. I don't think that's in the Bible. Uh, And then I feel like he whispered to me, these aren't really prayers anyway. They're anxiety and control. What's your point? <laughs> and I really feel like God told me to stop praying for this kid. Oh, And I had friends say, oh, well, you got a bunch of people to pray for this kid while you stopped praying. I was like, do you, do you understand that if, as a mom, I could get to the point where I had to stop praying, do you understand the burden on me? No, I didn't organize a prayer chain. There was nothing left Let me back up for a little bit in my life. My dad was an alcoholic, very nice alcoholic. When he drank too much, he got funnier or he went to sleep. But we, I mean, he didn't get angry. But we still had those family dynamics of an alcoholic family, for sure. I was an only child. So really difficult. And when I was in seminary, I got a call from my mom one day. I was back in Illinois, and she said things are worse with dad right now. And they would come and go, be better, get worse. And she said, you know, I'm just calling to tell you to really pray for dad. And I said, of course I will. And I hung up the phone, and I told God I'm not praying for him anymore. I'm done. I'm out. I think what I said to God is, you want prayer for him? You pray. This is ridiculous. This is a roller coaster. I have seen virtually no outcome for me praying for the better part of 30 years. I'm done. So I'm walking to class, and one of my friends runs into me, and he can just tell by the look of my face I'm not happy, and he's like, what's going on? I think I've got five minutes to get to class, so I just sort of dumped on him. Never forget what he did. Never had anybody do it since. Put his hands on my shoulders, and he said, here's the deal. For the next six weeks, I forbid you to pray for your dad. And I'm like, forbid you to pray? Who are all these people doing this new prayer stuff I've never heard about? He's like, seriously, this is where we're going to bear each other's burdens. I'm going to get six of your friends here, and for six weeks, we're taking it over. You need a break. You don't even need to pray. You just need to stop. And we're going to take over now. In six weeks, we're going to come back and find you. And we're going to tell you we'd like you to rejoin us in praying for your dad. I'd never had a gift like that before. I'd never had the lightness in my spirit when I walked to class thinking, it's not completely my burden. Somebody else is sharing that burden with me right now and giving me a break. My dad, it was still another, I don't know, 15 years came to faith three months before he died. My prayers for him were off and on and up and down and tiny and little and sometimes long and intense. And here's what I'm learning. It all counted. It was all prayer. I have mothers who say to me, I prayed every day for the spouse of my child. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm screwed. Laughter And then I look at my son-in-law, Zach, and I'm like, I prayed from time to time and I got Zach good enough. Seriously, good enough. At the worst time of stopping praying for one of my kids for a couple of months, when those two months were over, I had to be walking when I prayed for this kid. I couldn't be sitting still because my anxiety would go up too much. And then I coined the phrase, these are my dandelion prayers. And while I was walking, I said to God, here's all I've got put my hands up like this while I was walking, I said the child's name once here, once here, and after I said their name, I went, it's yours, it's yours. And that's somewhere between self-protection and surrender. I'm not sure which one it is completely, but there was a surrender that was so deep where I realized um, this child is on their own journey, and it's between them and you now, not me and them and you. And that's what's so crazy-making about parenting. The the exact right thing to do when they're little, control everything, protect them against everything, is exactly the wrong thing to do, and nobody tells you when to put in the clutch. So there will be turbulence. There just will be. And so to pray for your children, I remember such sweet times of praying in the middle of the night when I was nursing one of the babies, and I was in the nursery, and the light was coming through the lace windows, and it did a little pattern on the floor. I remember that so vividly. I remember other nights I was so tired. My only prayer was, make them go to sleep. Make them go to sleep. Make them go to sleep. Make John wake up. Make John wake up. Um, But it, it all counts. It's all a way to try to connect to God at this really weird intersection of this is the most wonderful thing I've ever done, and it is the most difficult thing I've ever done. And then the last thing I want to say, and this is a word that's just hard, but it's like, how do I learn to really, really, really love my child? Not for who I wish they were, but for who they are. When we had that very difficult, really 10-year period with one kid, five years that was very intense, one of the things John would say at night when we would go to bed is, at least we get to love them. Like, oh, okay. I'm not even quite sure what that means, but I think that's the right path. How do I love them? Because your love will be tested. You, You will begin to realize, I really wanted them to be this way. I really wanted them to be more like this and they're not? How do I genuinely, genuinely love them? Uh, Daniel Gottman has done a great study in the context of marriage, but it's, you can extrapolate it into parenting and actually into organizations. Healthiest relationships have a five to one ratio of five comments about somebody that are encouraging and positive. For every one time you have to have a difficult conversation with them. So how do you from the very beginning build in that rhythm with your spouse and with your children? of over time, it's about five to one. And I got to tell you, most relationships I see, most organizations I work with, I'd settle for three to one. How do we increase the number of times authentically, authentically, that we're reflecting back something wonderful about that person to them? For every one time, we have to have a difficult conversation. That's one way that you love. Another way that you love is, and I mentioned this before, is you co-parent. No, you don't do good cop, bad cop. Our kids were really little when I began to see this pattern of I did the housework, I did the cooking, I did the discipline, and I did the homework. Huh. And John took them out for ice cream and read to them. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'd like a little of this action, and I'd like to give you a little of this action. And it took us a couple of years to have really difficult conversations to carve out the kind of marriage we wanted, I wanted, to say, I don't, I'm not interested in a husband that just comes in and does the easy stuff and always looks like the hero and leaves the hard stuff to me. I'm only, I am interested in a husband who knows where the mop is, who knows how to unload and load the dishwasher, who bathes the children, who doesn't ask, do we need milk, but knows that we need milk. I want a fully participating co-parenting relationship in my marriage. You may not want that. Of course you do. (laughs) Of course you do. Because see, we want to be able to, and this is where this five and one comes back and forth, we want to be able to love people at their intersection. Of, here's the best part about me, and here's the worst part about me, because that's love. Last example, and this is really not about parenting, but just very much about that. How do I love somebody at the intersection of what's great about them, and what's difficult about them? When John and I were dating, we've been dating about three months And he called me up one Saturday afternoon and he said, hey, my Saturday meeting got canceled. I'm free. How about if I drive down and come to your apartment and we'll spend the evening together? And I said, well, you can come. But here's what you're going to find when you get here. And we've been dating three months. The first three months, you all know, every time you get together, you have something cute on and you've got your makeup done and your hair done. And you're thinking about what are we going to talk about on the date? And I said, I've been working all day long, taking the wallpaper off of my apartment kitchen with my roommate. We got the great idea once we took the wallpaper off, we thought it would be fun to get spray paint and graffiti the wall and then put the new uh, wallpaper over it, which it bleeds through. So don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we're sweating. We're saying bad words. We're trying to get this fixed. I have no makeup on. My hair's, I'm a mess. So I just tell them that. I said, that's what you're going to find when you come here. And, And for me, it was a turning point in our relationship. Sort of like, for three months, I've shown you my best side. But that's not the only side of me. Metaphorically, there's this side that doesn't look very good. And when you dig a little deeper, there's going to be attitudes and things in me that you're just going to be really surprised about. And I need to know, if you know her and you know her, can you integrate them and love that person? He told me months later, because of the family he grew up in, he thought it was really weird that when he called me, instead of saying, rather than saying that, he thought I would say, oh, I'll hop in the shower and get dressed and we'll go do something. I'm like, no. Now, to his credit, when he walked in the door, he said just the right thing. Gentlemen, you might want to take notes. I love every look of you. I love you when you're all fixed up, and I love you when you look like this, which was a lie, but he said the right thing. (laughs) And for me, it was that moment of, I've only shown him the part of Nancy that I feel safe showing him. But that's not love. Love is, I have another side. And honestly, on most days, I know her a little bit better than I know her. And I need you to meet her and not give her a different name. And then I need you to integrate that and let me know will you love that person? Our kids are asking the same question. We're asking the same question of God, to which God answers unresolvedly yes in Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of family. Expand our understanding of it in this church to be radical inclusion. It doesn't have to be bloodlines, but that kind of radical inclusion that you've shown since the beginning of time. And then I pray for everyone in this room right now who is a parent. This exquisite job that you've given all of us that we so desperately want to get right, but is so difficult. I pray that we would be really open to learn what we need to learn, to stretch and grow, to apologize to our children, to have conversations with them about how remarkable they are, and to really ask you to lead us as we parent our children. And then I pray for everyone else in the room who's not yet at this point that these words today would just sit where they need to sit in their brain, and that over time you would add to them in the form of books or them watching parents who they just really admire, and that when their day comes, that this topic, too, will help them. And then I pray for this church, that in this community, people would see the way that these folks do family, and it would be a bit of a magnetic draw to ask about you. In Christ's name, amen.